Today on the My Climate Journey Capital Series, our guest is Hampus Jacobson, general partner at Pale Blue Dot. Pale Blue Dot is a seed stage venture capital firm that backs the most exciting climate tech startups across Europe and the United States. I was excited for this one because Hampus is a software engineer, turned founder, turned angel investor, turned VC, and he also grew up working in areas of more traditional tech that didn't involve climate and only recently pivoted to devoting all of his professional attention to building a climate investment firm, a story that's relatable to many. Before we start, I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. Okay, Hampus Jacobson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So it's fun. Just before we started hitting record, we were trying to figure it out, and we still don't have answers, but... uh, Neither of us can remember exactly who put us in touch, but one thing I think we both know is that it was before Pale Blue Dot was alive, and it was before MCJ Collective was alive, but yet both of us had kind of turned a corner and decided that climate was where we were going to spend our next chapters. Does, does that jive with you, too? Yeah, I kind, of, I kind of feel we were two entrepreneurs lost in the dark, figuring out that we <laughs> want to spend the rest of our life and time in, in, uh, in climate. And then we were trying, I think we both had come to... So you, you were like the European me, and I was the North American you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's true. No, but it, it's right. I think I remember our first conversations were about starting funds, and that was kind of where we started. Well, I have to say, uh, I'm just so impressed with... I mean, essentially, you've done everything you said you would do so far um and in, in the, you know in this world of uh you know big bold statements and 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 under delivery uh you know doing what you say counts for a lot so congrats thanks i think that's the benefit of being scandinavian it is like i think scandinavia is like under promise over deliver whoever bought an ikea furniture feels that like wow it still works it's four years <laughs> in it still works that's crazy it's like this shelf is real in a shelf so yeah i think that's built into scandinavianness but yeah well, before we get too far down the path, Hampus, um, what what is Pale Blue Dot? Uh, for for obviously for anyone that doesn't know, no, exactly. In the majority of the world, of course, they don't know, right? So, like, I mean, Pale Blue Dot is a completely normal uh, venture fund, but that only invests in startups that we think scalably can solve the climate crisis. So, I, I think that we see, like, when we started the fund, I think one of the headaches we found, I was another fund then, which I really loved. But I think the headache is I almost felt that you, I think people feel if they go to another country and they taste the food and they don't have as much salt in that country as they have in yours or something. I just like you eat the food and it just doesn't do it for you. It's good. Like you can look at the food, but it doesn't do it. So I was meeting like, you know, cancer curing startups or like, you know, amazing, like decentralized way of doing XYZ or something. And I just, they just didn't have the salt. Like they had everything on the dish. It looked great, but I just didn't get that spark. And this was like late 2018, early 2019. And then I met that random like company working on climate somewhere or another back in 2019. And I just felt like jolt. I was like, wow, wow. Like this is what it should be. And then I just realized that shit, I actually don't want to spend any more time investing in any other company who isn't actually trying to solve this crisis. Uh, and I think that's kind of how it felt for me. And I think Heidi and Ewell coming in, my two co-GPs, and they, they came in from other directions. But like very similarly, I think we just, none of us had like a degree in environmental science. 
I think all of us built companies before, and I think it just felt suddenly, this is where I'm going to spend as long time as I can in this area, because it's the only thing that gives me energy. And not like rubber ducking on the highway to read yet another article about temperature predictions or flood predictions, because that's kind of how climate change feels. I think, did you feel like a, a victim and an observer? And I think it's hard to figure out how you can play an active role. And I think that that's kind of what we suddenly realized, like, oh, my God, we've built companies for 10 plus years individually. And we've invested in companies for whatever it was then, almost 10 years, I guess, individually. I mean, this is the only thing we know. Like, we, the only thing we know is like super early stage companies and investing. And then why not take that practice and put it at the climate crisis? Now, when you when you saw this company, was that the first time you had been concerned about climate? Or, or I guess, walk, walk me through your feelings about the problem and how those evolved over time and intersected with your professional pursuits. Yeah, so I think that, I mean, I come from a family that especially spends all of their time hiking. And my dad is uh, originally a nuclear scientist. My mom is a geneticist. My two older brothers are abstract mathematicians. I think that I lovingly usually say that they use their bodies to take their brains to meetings. So like, we kind of spend a lot of time in nature and discussing science and stuff. And I was a kid, I thought I was going to be a mathematician or similar as my, my rest of my family. And I think that just like always found that how important just like nature and ecosystems are like, I mean, it's amazing feeling you stop by a Creek and you realize you can drink the water or like something. It's amazing. And I'd always felt that. But then I think that I just never, ever felt that it would be my profession. Like I never at all. And I think that I just worked alongside it. And it's almost like, finding to be able to invest in climate climate tech is almost like meeting the girl next door it's like you've lived alongside it for so long and then suddenly you realize oh my god like is it true am i allowed to actually spend my time in this so i think that's kind of how it came for me it's that it was that feeling of being alongside it forever but i think also as everyone else in this industry having seen the you know the clean tech bubble having like, you know, met all of those companies that work with like sock recycling or with building new solar panels. It just feels like it's not venture. It's not venture. And I think I've told myself that phrase so many times. It's like, this is not venture. But then when I was at this fund in Berlin, I just felt like the only three things I really care about and get energy from and and also get stressed from are inequality, trust and climate. Those are the three that I feel like I just get so angry and sad when any of those, when I feel like people are not realizing those. And I just feel like, can you invest in inequality as a thesis? Maybe you can, but it's maybe maybe how you invest. Like you're more considerate and thinking about how you do it. Can you invest in trust? Maybe you could, some kind of, you know, decentralized product of XYZ. And then like, can you invest in climate? And I kind of paused and I felt like, maybe you could, maybe you could. So 2019, I kind of built a big climate uh, tech conference in Berlin for the fund I was at, Blueyard. And I was building that event. And I was building the event, which was like an invite-only 100 people event, I kind of felt, wow, this is it. Like these people are every day trying to solve the problem. Like the people I'm getting to come to the event and speak, they're action biased. They're not talking about percentage probability of what temperature degree will happen when. Uh, they're not talking about how to do least impact or how to do more in, most impact. They're throwing themselves at the problem and applying themselves in fully trying to solve it. And I just felt so much energy and so much joy in being around these people, whether they were in whatever, academia, startup or anything. I just felt, wow, that's like not observers, but actually throwing themselves into the game, going out on the ice. And it's like, how can I do work? You're just saying ice for me because, you know, I'm a big hockey fan. 
Thank you. Uh, I used to work at uh, BlackBerry. I acquired my first company. And I think that because I was in the M&A team, uh, I like there's so many calls that started with like people retelling the whole hockey game. And I was sitting there just like waiting, you know, to get out of how, you know, Toronto was doing. And like, how's the Maple Leafs today? And I felt like, oh, my God, like as a Swede, it's like it's uh, but it was good still. But yeah, no, but I think that's kind of felt I felt how do I like how, like I was just admiring and getting energy from everybody on the ice. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And that's like what 2019 was all about for me. Just thinking. I think also I think that honestly, I think what your podcast does for a lot of people as well. I think a lot of people, they think they would want to work with the climate crisis somewhere, but they think that I'm a lawyer or you know, I'm an accountant, or I'm a programmer, or I'm a designer, and they think that they need a degree in environmental science or something, and they like they can't do anything. And I think I kind of, of course, felt the same. I kind of felt, what can I do? Uh, and then suddenly realized, what the, the only thing I can do is kind of invest in startups and help early stage founders. That's the the thing I've spent the last you know many many years on. And then it just felt like let's go try. So that's kind of the that's kind of how the trajectory was in the beginning. So once you had this aha. Uh, then how did things go from there? Because there's so many different ways that one could move forward from that epiphany. How did you move forward? I think that I think that I always I, I'm such a believer in like game theory, not macro theory in a sense. I, I just macroeconomics or whatever you call it. So I just felt like I prototyped this conference and just felt like let's let's get them into the room and let's almost you know fantasy portfolio kind of think about should i invest in that company would i invest in that company and because of the fund i was at i was of course we were discussing some of these companies and then i just felt how hard it was to align like or if you can invest in any kind of company invest in the divorce company you invest in the social media platform you invest in the company sucking down methane from the sky like two of them have crazy stellar metrics one and one is like scientific and very hard of course as a venture fund you're going to pick the the divorce company that's great growing 40 percent month on month and i just felt no no, I don't want to. I actually want to pick the hard one. And then, uh, so then I kind of talked to my two colleagues, Kieran and Jason, up here, and we're amazing people. And I said, like, I, 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 we got to figure this out. And then Kieran just said, like, maybe you should, maybe you should leave and start a fund. Uh, and then I was like, trying to kind of grapple with that fact, because I really enjoyed working there. And then just starting dating with Heidi and Ewell, um, more and more, my two co-GPs, who I'd worked with in different kind of ways, but never in the same boat completed together and never kind of saying we're going to do a fun together. So we started just meeting every week and like for lunch and talking through it and like, you know, picking companies and talking about companies and theses and what we loved and also like how to build funds. We talked about what we dislike and like about funds. And then we kind of started fundraising October uh, so 2019 and then started the, the the crazy thing of fundraising. And I think in the beginning, it was so strange because 2019, September, you tell somebody that you're going to start a fund on climate change. I mean, it was 50% of the people we talked to said climate change is not real. Uh, and the other 50% said, yeah, it's real, but you can't invest in it. Like it's it's like philanthropy and there's nothing, no money to be made. So we started so strangely when we had this conversation, but then we met a handful of people who said, this is it. Like, you know, you're onto something. This is, there's going to be a thesis here, right? And, you know, the crazy thing is between October 2019 and June 2020, when we did the uh, first close of the fund, like month by month, like not the temperature, of course, increased on the planet as well. But not only that, like we just felt how the shift in the dialogue were from people saying it's not real to suddenly people saying they only said can invest in it or they said yeah, this is smart. And then it just rolled over to more and more coming in. And we did it like a little ingenious trick there, I think we did, which I recommend everybody's raising a fund. We wrote an email which is essentially why you should not invest in Pelb.1. Like, it's our first fund together. It's a sub-$100 million fund. 
it's a euro fund it's in sweden it's like we uh, we're gonna invest in blah 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 we do like everything we believe in the climate tech this is what we believe in and then whenever we got an intro or when everybody pinged us and said hey i would love to talk to you if you're doing a fund we just said that's great thanks a lot bob thanks a lot lisa just before we book a call here's so you know about us and we send that email no deck just literally that email and i would say 70 percent just said oh Oh, oh, thanks. Like, I didn't know there was the first fund. And kind of the email said, you should probably not invest in one, right? Like we said, so we completely understand if you're not investing in emerging managers. And 70% just said, no, you're right, we don't. But thanks a lot. Like, good, thank you. Which meant that when we came to a call, the 30% who said, no, no, I know. Can you please just send me a link to book a meeting with you? Or, or like, here's my meeting times. Those kind of, we had a shot at those, which meant that we never had that I think that experience with a lot of um, GPs have, like you go out and kiss a thousand frogs and you travel all over the world and you meet a lot of people and you realize the first 10 minutes in, you realize this is never going to happen. Like you only invest in fourth or fifth or eighth funds or whatever. You need a certain number. You need a certain background. It was so good because when we got to the calls, people said, no, I really want to talk about this particular part. So the fundraising was, even if it was a lot of work, I think it was very, very interesting because we actually had really interesting dialogues. Now, I have a lot of questions about the Pale Blue thesis and how you came up with it and how it's evolved over time and things like that. But before we do, just this kind of spurs a question on on fundraising 101, which is as an emerging manager heading out for your first fund, how do you balance transactionally spending your time efficiently to get fund one closed versus planting the seeds directionally with the LPs that want to get to know you over time that won't be prospects for fund one, but will be important directionally for funds two through N? I think we kind of told everybody as much as we could. We said, we try to give people a very easy out. So like we told people when they said, hey, we're called, like we're interested in work, this venture fund or like this massive fund of funds or this pension fund or whatever. And like, you just feel like, I, do they do first funds? It's like. Uh, like Singaporean fund of funds. It feels like, I don't think Temasek is going to do fund one in Sweden, but you never know, right? So like, I think what we told everybody was like, shouldn't we talk after first close? And it's the same. We send this email, which is like the first email, which is like, you probably shouldn't invest, right? But if they continued, we kind of, first of all, we didn't travel to any of first meetings at all, ever, ever, ever. So we always said, let's do a call or a Zoom call. And then when we did, we kind of said, isn't it easier for us to kind of talk when we've done first close and you kind of see more of the, you know, the portfolio, see more like what we do. And then you had certain who said, no, no, we're believers. Like we love emerging managers. We love this thesis. And we had others who said, yeah. And like, if they give it up that easy, it's obvious that they would have said it later. Right. So like, so I think that we kind of try to always try to get people to bow out uh, in a, in a nice way. And then like, you really feel that people said, don't you think that we get it? And we're like, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. I just felt like maybe for you, you want to see more logos. You want to see more of our thesis. And they're like, no, 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 no. We thought a lot about this. We think this is amazing. We're like, okay. Um, so I think that was like, a, I don't know if you want to call it a tactic, but it was one of those things. We saved so much time from both ends, right? And then after the first closing, we started investing. And then people kind of saw what we invested in. They saw the thesis. And they saw kind of how we kind of also believe in like the machine of investing, not only like individual logos, but like What's our ticket size? What our shareholding? Like, how do we do the investment? How do we write the memo? Whatever, all of those like mechanics about it. And I think they just felt, okay, so you actually do what you said you would do. And then we're like, yeah, yeah, of course. Like, that's what we do, right? And then at second closing, we, we actually got crazy. It was really strange. We got oversubscribed. And I think the reason was that we had just pushed so many people to just saying, you know, should we talk in October? Or should we talk then when we've seen a couple of logos? So actually the second closing was nice enough easier. And I think it's for everybody, right? Because the second closing, like, people see what you do and you have a fund. It's not a new vehicle to set up. You, they can do reference code with an existing LP and stuff like that. 
So I think that was, I think, was the tactic we used. And I think that the tactic we generally try to use, just try to figure out if it's an easy way to get people to say no, because if they would say no that easily, they would have said no anyway. And what was the target for or fun one or, or what, what or what size did you end up at either one? So the plan was to do 80 million euros and we ended up at 87. But it was one of those where we ended up just with people we wanted. Like we just felt that every single one uh, in fund one, we have a mix of a couple of big institutionals. And then we have a long tail of really amazing entrepreneurs or operators. And we really, we enjoyed so much, like because week by week, uh, one of the operators said yes. So like somebody says, I'd love to join 500K or I'd love to join 250 or even a million, right? And at the same time, nothing happened at the big institutions. They said, yeah, our typical size is 5 million. Okay, we fill in another due diligence questionnaire for them. Nothing happens. So like you, we got the dopamine cakes from the operators. We're like, okay, they're moving forward. Like the number increases. But we also, of course, like the, we would never be able to do the close without having the big ones. And the big ones, of course, all the operators and all the, the smaller checks, they, of course, leaned on somebody being the anchor or somebody being large tickets or somebody doing reference calls and due diligence and everything like that. So I think it was a very nice tandem and I really enjoyed the experience. And I think the questions you get from a pension fund versus the question you get from somebody who's run a company, I mean, they're amazingly different. And I think both are very valid. I mean, the operator are not asking about portfolio structures, but I mean, they ask about like, how do you know a founder is good? Or like, tell me a founder you really love in the, in the market right now or whatever. Whereas the pension fund is like grilling you on, you know, how do you handle reserves? Do you vote the reserves? Or do the reserves automatically happen in a subsequent round? And we were like, whoa, that's a really good question. So it was like, it was very, very good sparring during the fundraise to actually learn from both sides. So that's kind of how it came about. And we started investing. We actually started investing just before the first close, which was very, very, it was a bit, bit scary. We had like three companies we were about to invest in. And then one of the companies were saying like, we, we will close, we can't wait. And then so I signed on it personally with uh, addendum saying that we could transfer this to the fund and we had 60 days to transfer it to the fund or i would have to pay it and it was one of those things where i'd be like okay like i had an exit before with my company but i mean you don't want to do a seed stage deal out of pocket um so it was one of those i'm happy we closed the fund within 60 days how did you think about strategy thesis portfolio construction when you first went to market and how Consistent is that with where you ended up uh, today or, or at the culmination of, of final close? I think we changed a lot of things. I think we changed a lot of things as we go. I think that we're very much like a block and tackle uh, group of people. I think that I usually say that most decisions we do, we kind of jokingly, I would say, swim with sharks. So like what I mean by that is like it's as if we fell off a boat and you see the shore of an island and you know there are sharks in the water and you can crawl and you can breaststroke. So the first thing you do is you do a couple of breaststrokes to know your right direction and check the island. And then you start crawling like crazy. And then you pause and you do a couple of breaststrokes to make sure you're still in the right direction. And then you crawl again. And I think Pale the Dot, we kind of run the same way that we kind of start discussing how do we think about portfolio construction, how we think about this. And it's the good conversation. Now let's go invest in what we believe in. And then like, you know, a couple of months in, we said, I just met this company. I, I would want to own 25% of that company, but we can't. I mean, that's crazy. Like we'd mess up the cap table, we'll do this and that, but can we do 20? What do we think, right? You take a couple of breaststrokes and have a conversation. And then we figure out like, no, no, let's settle for 14. That's probably smart. And then like, you know, we do more, more crawls. And I think that there were very few course corrections in the in target shareholding. When we started, we kind of said what a lot of funds said. We said 15% shareholding is probably smart, trying to spend between one and one and a half million dollars euros. That kind of felt where we wanted to be. But then we felt we're a new kid on the block. Um, even if we have done a lot of investing, Hyde Newell and I, I think we, pre before starting Pale Badot, I think we've done 150 
angel deals and you know fun deals and whatever where we kind of had done the practice quite a lot but at the same time had we done it together had we done it in climate like a lot of these factors right had we done it in seed all of them um so we kind of felt we probably need to be a lot more collaborative and the way we think we can be collaborative is by going down to 10 percent shareholding because then you can split around like you would like we'll do half you'll do half or something and i think the 50 percent was very compatible with certain kind of funds where they said hey we can do four or five percent that works right but that those are fewer in the world so we kind of moved to saying 10% to say, let's be able to split it within their seed fund. And I think it was very good for us because like, we learned a lot from where that is a good idea and we, when it's a bad idea. And one thing we also did in the beginning, which we've changed our mind on, is previously, we also did pre-seed rounds when we were okay with taking sub 10%. So we said, okay, we did a deal, 6%, that's fine. That's really, you know, we'll just buy more in the seed round. But the problem is like when that happens, it's so hard to buy more in that seed round. The dynamic is so weird. Like you come in and you want not on your parada, right? You know, you want to get up to 10% now. So it is a great signal for the lead, but the lead might not get their target shareholding. So the lead is saying, no, 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 like we need 20. And you, we say, well, is it, are you okay with 16? Because we need to buy another 4%. Most leads that are very bullish of the company say, no, 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 no. We want 20%, right? And also that you have problems like the founders have worked with you for a year, two years or six months or three months, whatever. And now you need to tell them that you're going to be super valuable for them in the next round and the next round and the next round. And some companies, they just believe it. And some companies are saying, yeah, I mean, this new fund that we fell in love with, we want to make sure that they're incentivized maximally, right, to help us. So it becomes a bit of a strange dynamic. And I think that the other thing that also happens is if you happen to hit one of those amazing companies, the pre-seed round might not be super expensive, but the seed round sure is. So we had some companies where we looked at the average price to get that seed and we said, holy shit, this was an expensive seed round. And it was a strange thing is that's, of course, you know, if we did the seed, we wouldn't even higher price because, of course, we got the pre-seed price part of it. But the thing is, like, why didn't we take our full shareholding in the pre-seed round? Like you spend another 250K to get to 10%. Why are you cheap on the 250 and spend only 500? We can spend 750 or whatever. So that's the thing we really changed and said, no, no, in the future, like if you're not telling no you're held nest yes kind of level um i think that like we just decide like if we believe in this company we're going to take 10 percent showing at the pre-seed and then sometimes it becomes complicated because in the pre-seed rounds some of them they're only 12 percent dilution and then you kind of have a co-investor and now you have this problem i just said before that you want to be collaborative so this is a problem that we're trying to solve and figure out and it is not uncomplicated but i think that's the main thing that we've discussed over the years except voting voting we have talked about at length so much but i think that how much shareholding when is something that we can't constantly talk about and i think that the general view we have is we should get 10 percent at the first ticket and that's like the easiest for everybody and how do you think about uh f- first check versus uh follow-on and how do you handle reserves yeah and then what we do there as well is that by the way i realized i didn't say that by 10 percent shareholding i think that everybody who do the math immediately will start thinking oh my god that's a pretty shallow portfolio like you how do you figure out you need like crazy unicorns to return your fund i think the way we do it is we do 35 uh tickets plus 35 tickets so like the way we think about it is that if you think about the distribution of the probability distribution of getting a 0x fund and getting a 10x fund by doing a broader shallower portfolio we increase the floor like the probability of us doing a 0.5x fund becomes like lower, it's higher, like it's more probable that we do more than 0.5x the money because we have such a broad portfolio. So some will be good. Um, and of course, we get like that for every single deal we do with temps and shareholding, the probability goes up and up and up that we are hit more than 1x. And then the more shallow we go uh, and like broad, 
the, the we cut the, the top. So like it's very, very, very hard for us to do a 10x fund. It's very hard for anybody to do a 10x fund. But I mean, it's like, so we kind of try to like lift the floor quite a lot to make sure that we're in a situation where we feel that we can do a really good fund. And one of the reasons there is like, this is our first fund. I think that we want to make sure that we have an opportunity to do Payable.1, Payable.2, and Payable.3 on whatever, four, five, six. And I think that what I feel like some people do, which is understandable, they want to show amazing logos. They do like, 15 logos 20 percent shareholding in their first ticket which is you know smart but the problem is that it, you need to fundraise fund two very very soon because unless like if you roll that two or three years some of the amazing rounds you did have now got a down round and now you, your metrics are really bad and of course if you were lucky or good whatever you want to call it <laughs> then you hit an amazing one and they look really great so i think that we wanted like more of a machine practice where we said no no let's actually try to do roughly one deal a month let's get you know, 10% shareholding for one to one and a half million euros, dollars, pounds. And let's keep going. Let's add 35 to 40 logos. And every month we stack crack the portfolio and we try to figure out to your reserves question, we try to not put reserves in the bottom stack, but we always put reserves on the everything else. So I think that instead of saying we're double down on our winners, we say we try to avoid not putting Parada on the bottom part. And I think that then people say, oh, what do you mean bottom part? I mean, some companies just, you know, they don't work. Like it's just like uh, both the founder and us, founders and us, like realize like this doesn't work and they actually want to fold the company. Then they, of course, e- easy out. Some founders separate and the other ones are not keen. They want to continue the business. And some companies, they don't have the traction and it just feels very complicated. And then it gets complicated because then you have certain companies where the founders thinks they've got it, and but we just feel like this doesn't work. And then it becomes complicated. But I think that what we really try to think about a lot is we don't try to guess who wins. We just try to guess so we don't put reserves in companies that we think won't make it. That's kind of our strategy a lot. And then like that's our the next round, so like the A round. And then the B round, we try to not put as much money in it, but try to actually try to make the the whole allocation being pre-seed, seed, and A and not go further. But then we do put, you know, a handful of small tickets. And and then we do Parada in the next round for 10%. We kind of do quote unquote automatically. So like for the A round. It has to be a very big reason we don't. That's like the reverse stack ranking conversation where we say, come on, this is like a company that we rated low for so long time. Um, but then the, if there's a B round, this becomes a long conversation internally if we should put more money in it. And are there situations where you'll ever do more than pro rata? Only to get to, to like the 10% shareholding. So like if we have so our once, you're, once you're at 10, yeah, you're, you're, you're not going to exceed. Um, if, if there are opportunities where you have allocation for more, let's say at the B, uh, that you're not planning to take, do you do anything with that or do you just let it go? For Payable.1, we didn't. And I think that for Payable.2, we might go slightly higher than 10% and we might be, we will be way more intelligent in how we handle that. So we had, for a couple of companies, for the B, we just didn't take Reparata. And I think that we should have been more structured and thinking what we want to do with it. We, I think that if we look at the LPs we have and going forward with Payable.2, um, we will probably not set opportunity vehicles like we and SPVs. Like we will probably work closely with LPs that we think that could add value for the company and say, here's one of our LPs. They would really keen on talking to you. It's really up to you, like the startup, but because we have our product, like we have it, at least in a location we can talk about, right? There's not a given that we, that we can get it to this LP, and we also don't want to force an LP on a startup, but it's way easier for that for our one of our LPs to kind of say, hey, 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 there is 3 million or whatever Pebble dots allocation available. We would love to look at that. So I think that's the plan going forward with Pebble dot too. Got it. And we talked about 
stage uh, and ownership targets. What about sectors, especially given that climate really isn't a sector in itself? No, exactly. I think that we, we, we do very much everything. I think that we even have we even have the level where we've realized that every single time we said we don't do an area, we have done that area within six months. So like we have said, and when we started the fund, when we talked about the fund, we said, I don't think we're going to do carbon markets, like, you know, carbon MRV or anything. We think that's going to be too hard to build really big companies on. There are not enough, you know, moats, da, da, da. We like every single, you know, LP we had a call with said that, oh, will you do like these carbon accounting companies? We're like, I don't think so. We've talked to 30 of them. We're not getting the confidence. And then one of our first logos to in was Patch, which is like not obviously carbon MRV is not what they do, but they are definitely the quote unquote carbon economy. And we were like, okay, okay, but that was, a you know, and then we had a similar thing. Like, we don't think we're going to invest in a food, probably not. Like it's like, especially food CPGs. We did better fish. We're like, oh my God, this is the company. They're so good. And like, we're not going to invest in hardware. Then with Jaro, did it. Like, we're like, oh my God, we did like, we should just shut our mouths. Uh, every time we say we won't do something, we end up doing it. So I think the way we think about it is exactly what you said. We don't view climate change or climate tech as a sector. It's an aperture, right? And I think for us, it's super important that the company is scalable. They're addressing something that that you can fuel with money, that it's not something that is, it's not fundamental research. So like essentially time is the, what you're working with. You're, you can, if you give them two more million, they can go faster and not just like, you're just giving them salaries to keep being alive. And then when they scale, they could actually, you know, chip off something at the climate crisis. It shouldn't be that, ooh, is this company mostly indexing the crisis or are they actually benefit? Like, are they trying to help out? And then I think that for us, it's super, super important that the founders are like the leaders of tomorrow. We really want to invest in people where we feel like if these people become some of the most powerful people in the world, we want to be really, really happy for that. So when we talk to a founder, we feel like these people are, I don't feel they're doing it for the right reasons. It feels really scary to have this conversation. Would you be proud in 10 years, like when you read the article about them, or would you feel like, yeah, I mean, good, they, their first company did something good. Um, and I think that, I think that's, so that's a conversation we have a lot are these like pivotal founders. And I think that's something that we've been really proud of as well. Like we do an offsite when we go kayaking with the founders, uh, once here in June in uh, Swedish archipelago. And I think that it's so crazy because when all of the founders gather in one point, I think that it's so strange because you immediately feel like, oh my God, these people are in a sense, fairly similar. Uh, very different, of course, like we invested in so far 30 companies. So like, you know, a lot of different founders, a lot of different personalities, a lot of different geographies and sectors and competences, of course. But I think it's so funny because we have some of our founders in Pebbledot, they say, sometimes they say, I think I met a potential Pebbledot founder. And when we come to that call, you you just feel like, yeah, this is, a, you're right. This is a Pebble Dot founder. I got it. And, and of course, you know, it doesn't mean we have to, like we sometimes invest, like rarely so, of course, we have to love it, every, everything about it. But it's so funny when you start feeling that there is a, there's a big personality aspect, uh, like to who we invest in. Uh, can we stop there for a second? Uh, Hampus, what does it mean in your words to be a Pale Blue Dot founder? I think that it, it's slightly different for Heidi and I, actually, that's the strange thing. We talked about this so much. I think that, I think for all three of us, it's like good people. Like, it's very important that these are people, I, I think we usually have the nice index questions. Would you leave your kids with this person? Or like, it, wouldn't you allow one of your kids to do an internship? Or would you happy that one of your kids did an internship at this company? There are certain founders that we both know and the listener to this know that you would say, wow, yeah, me, yeah, depends on who, like, you know, yeah, I think so. And then there are other founders who was like, no, no, of course. No, no, like, I'd let my kids travel to their side of the world and work for them. I think that's not a problem. They're amazing, right? 
So I think that's a very big criteria that we just feel like these are people that we would trust in multiple level on it, like an emotional level, right? And then I think when it boils down to more rational, logical parts, I think it is that they're very, very ambitious. Um, I think for you and me, we often talk about how important this clarity of thought for us, which is such a VC term. But for us, it is like I always, always try to do the calls where I, I try to pitch them what they do. I just say like, hey, brother deck, this is what I think you do. And I kind of tell them and they have a laugh because half of the time I'm half right. And often I'm not that, that good at it. But it's really good because they, they immediately say, okay, like you get 80%. Let me explain the 20% you didn't get. And I think that that conversation becomes so interesting because some people, they just interrupt me and say, please don't do this. Like, I can't, like, can I just run through the slides and tell you what we do? And I just said like, no, please, can we just, can we just try with like me? And I know I, I don't want to take the stage. That's not what I do. Like, I just want to save you a lot of time. And that you can feel how like stale the conversation is. They want to like run it slide by slide. They don't want a conversation. They want to put on their stage voice. And I just feel like, no, 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 no. I want to work with people that like we add each other on WhatsApp and we send each other voice messages and that feeling. And that becomes really important for me. So like when you move from the character of thought where like they get what they do in your conversation, for me, it is that agile, really fast moving where they send me a voice message and I like think about it for a bit and I send them one back and they say, hey, I've made a mini slide deck for this. What do you think about this? And we start reading it. I'm like, I love this. This is really good. And I think that then I think that Heidi she really wants a vision like for her she really loves when she's like the the feel in her gut for the big vision i think for you all it's very important that he feels like he he loves when one solution can unlock another market so like they can do something which sounds fairly small but you realize like if you actually own this thing you can actually unlock a huge thing after that but we don't even know what it is and i think that's and it's so funny because like we're so different on that so sometimes when we meet a founder i can just in the call say this is your company like you should talk to these people because like they're always talking about how to build this platform to take control of something. And sometimes I feel like the same thing. I'm like, this is a Heidi founder. Like, I mean, she would just feel like, whoa, these people are so visionary. It's amazing. Um, so I think it, it is, it is, you know, it's slightly different, but I think at the end of the day, I find a lot of our founders to be extremely nice people that are really trying to solve a problem genuinely. And we would trust them a lot. And that's, I think is like the short version of it. Hey everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. Can you talk a bit about the decision process on uh, uh, potential investments, both in terms of uh, the letter of the law, but also in practice? Yeah. So I usually jokingly say, and this was a founder that said it many years ago, that she had me and one other investor, Eric Brenius at Trellis. This is Anna, who is Eric's current colleague at Trellis, a venture fund. But I invested in her startup, and Eric did too. And she once said to me, Hampus, you're Cora. Eric is Wikipedia. Like you want a fast answer, which is almost right, 
but and like very quick and very succinct, you ask Campus. If you want the correct answer, but it takes you a very long time to get get through it, you ask Eric. <laughs> so like if you ask me what our investment agreement says, I actually don't you, really you know. You are a European me, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so so I'll give you the core answer. Uh, no, but the but the but the way it works and the way it actually is here is that, and this we've discussed a lot, is anybody can lead a deal. So like we essentially are, we have a voting mechanism which is. Um, so it's minus one, zero, one, two. So minus one is hell no. That is, this is a portfolio risk. Like investing in this company, this could take down the whole portfolio. Like there might be a, it might be in a country that's really complicated that might like propagate like legally in a bad way. Or it might be that these founders actually could, could be really, really bad for us in one way or another, or very, very controversial topic or something that we would be really afraid of, of because it could mess up everything. That has still not ever happened. Um, but it's good to kind of have the feeling that you can't stop a deal. Then you have zero, no. So that just means like, no, I don't like this. I don't think this is, I wouldn't put my money on this. Then you have one, which is, I like this. This is good. And then you have two, which is, hell yes, I really want us to invest in this. And that means it, you can you lead. And I think what's interesting is like what we've done is what you need to invest is somebody needs to say hell yes and nobody needs to say hell no. So we have a lot of deals where one person said hell yes and both of those said no. And we have a couple of deals where one, like two people said hell yes, and the other person said no. And we have one deal where, you know, we have all kinds of combos of this, which is not including hell no, of course. And it's so funny because it is a very good dynamic. I think we really learned that during the fund is that if you have any kind of majority decision, if any kind of like you need, before in the start, we had like, you need one hell yes and one yes. And I think the problem of that is like, so if you're in love with a company or if I'm in love with a company, I kind of like feel, wow, this is amazing, Jason. I need to get you to say yes. And I have two people. So I'm like, Heidi and you, all right. So I go and tell Heidi. It's like, I love this company. They're really good. And Heidi's like, mm, I'm lukewarm. I feel like, okay, I'll go and try to pitch it to you. I'll pitch it to you. And he says like, oh, I love it. That's amazing. Now I don't need to bother with Heidi, right? Like I'm done. I just like, now I'm done. I don't even talk to her. So like, I just continue and we do the deal. And Heidi's like, do you want to like do a write-up? I'm like, no, in a sense, I don't care. I'm not saying this happens, but do you mind like the, and also like, if you have those situations where you need someone else to say yes, where they're arguing against you, it's so much harder to be completely transparent than coming in the morning and say, I had a really bad call with him last night. Like, I don't think this is really good. And then the other ones said, I think I'll change my yes to no. You're like, oh, shit. So you don't want that, right? But what's so good, what we do is like, when I say, I love this company, I, I want to do it. Heidi and you can really support me. They can really say, hmm, isn't the market fairly small? And I can be like, what do you mean? And they kind of like, this is what I'm thinking. And I was like, oh, shit, you're right. I got to ask them this and we can think about it. And What's important here is like we have a completely equal vote, completely equal ownership. So like all three of us, Heidi and I, are like we can run our deal exactly the way we want. And I think this has created so much of a good atmosphere because it really means that you're talking to your colleagues not to get their vote, but actually to get their brain. So you really say, can you please talk to this company? I, 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 am, I think I'm a hell yes, but I'm like now I'm feeling like I'm leaving out. And there's so many good questions you can ask each other. So sometimes we have one company where where it's really funny because what happened is it's climate X. I think it's, it's, I don't know. I think the founders know this, but what happened is that the um, Heidi had a call with them and then she came out of the call and like, she was, she was super psyched. It was so amazing. And we talked about it quite a lot. And then she, we talked about it a lot and she declined it. She was like, I'm for these three or four reasons. And I, we were in the office together. And then she came out of the meeting room and said, I just declined it, but <sighs> they asked for a new meeting. And I kind of, I'm going to have another meeting with them. And like, you know, you know, as an investor, you never really do that. Like when you say no, you kind of don't want to have the explanation second and a third and a fourth. And Heidi said like, I'll actually do that at the second meeting with them. I'll, it's a good point. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to them more. She came on that second call and she walked out of the meeting room and, and like looked at me and said, 
Oh, I, I, I did explain why I should like well, we're not in, but I feel actually really bad about it. So I got to sleep on this. Like, let's let's think about it. I was like, okay, no worries. Out. And then like she had a second meeting with them, and then she came out of the meeting and said like, ah, like it gives me so much headache. Like I I I, I don't want to invest in this, and I do want to invest in it. And I kind of looked at her and I kind of said, honestly, Heidi, I'll change my no vote to a yes vote for only one reason, and that is like if you can't decline it. There's something there, isn't there? And I just looked at me and smiled. And she was like, that's exactly the problem, right? Like, I see so many problems with what they're building. But these people are winners. These people are just so amazing. I can't decline them. And she didn't, like, need my vote, right? But that this conversation of just seeing that, you know, you need that sparring partner where you just say, like, you're right. Like, isn't this amazing? Like, it is amazing. And I think that's, like, really helps you. And I want to say one more thing about this, which I think is the complicated thing. I think that as a founder... I think that if you come from certain like education backgrounds, like your business background, you've learned to kind of on a scale one to five, get all of your things to three or four and sometimes a five star on something, but you really want to get three to fives or three to four solidly. So like nobody can say, well, you didn't do French or whatever. Like you don't want anybody to point out the things you're bad at. And I think that as venture funds, especially super early stage funds, pre-seed and seed funds, we have no issue with something that is not good. We want to see something which is crazy, like crazy good, right? And I think that what we do is like, if you look at the bell curve of founders and startups, like you have the bell curve, lowest point, you have the crazy bad, and then you have like the things that are good and like get better, better. And then you have the ones that are crazy good. I think the job of a pre-seed fund is not to invest in the middle part, which are obviously good. So our job becomes of sorting if it's crazy good or crazy bad. And that's the hard part, right? That we have to ask ourselves, is this like, it's crazy? Yes. But is it good or bad? So like most of the companies we invest in, they have massive flaws, right? There's something that doesn't work. But we believe something is so amazing on it that we think we should do it. And I think the headache is that what that means, that if you come from a background or from an education where you've learned to polish your things but not showing yourself, you kind of build a very, very solid 3.5 to 4-star deck presentation style. And what that reflects in our voting system is all of us vote yes. So all of us says, yeah, I think we should do this. I'm a yes, I'm a yes, I'm a yes. And we look at it and it's like, but don't you want to lead it? And the, lead, the person who brought it in says like, nah, I really hope that one of you would fall in love with it. And I'm like, no, I'm not in love. I think it's really good. I would super support you. And we have this conversation. We're like, nobody's really in love here. We're all like liking this, but we're not in love. And I think that it's kind of the same. I think that you think about it, like when you have friends who have like, they're living in the same city, both of them live in New York. And then their partner says they've dated for like six months. And the partner says, I've got this gig in San Francisco. I'm going to leave. You have people who said, Chuck's too bad, like it's too bad, too bad for us, right? And then if people say, I'm going to, you know, travel with you, long, long distance relationship, we're going to figure it out, right? And I think that it's the same, like, if you're not in love, love, like, you shouldn't do this investment. Like, it, you know, if you feel like this is good, but it's not crazy love, you shouldn't do it. You should just say, there are other fish out in their pond for you. You're going to find someone else. And I think that's, I think it's the hard part, I think, for a lot of founders to realize that in the early stages, you should let your crazy shine. You should really double down on the things that you think is very particular about what you do. And I think that becomes very strange in a, in a, for an early stage fund who, who believes in voting, who believe in like consensus voting. Because if you're crazy, you will piss off somebody in that fund. And somebody will say, we can't invest in this company. They're just too strange. And I think that you shouldn't be strange on purpose, for God's sake. <laughs> I think that you should be you. But I think that's the thing which really reflects in our voting system. We have plenty of three yeses that are in our, like, we've written an IM, we've done everything, but we just look at it and say, like, I don't want to lead it. Rats. 
When you look at opportunities, uh, I mean, already you, you mentioned three sectors that are very different from each other. How important is sector expertise within the partnership in terms of categories where you play? Uh, and what does your diligence process look like? And, and does it vary greatly um, for these sectors that, that operate very differently from each other? I mean, it's, it's a great question. I think it's something that we had uh, imposter syndromes a lot in the beginning. I mean, I think as a founder, you're born with imposter syndrome. So I think that that never goes away. Uh, but I think that in the beginning, we just asked ourselves, like, we, can we ever do a deal within, you know, chemistry? Can we ever do a deal with this XYC? And it's really hard, right? But I think that you realize after a while, it's like, there are certain kind of deals, certain kind of investments, I would say we just don't do because we actually don't have a clue what good looks like. Like if somebody says we've created this new process of doing this chemical reaction at higher speed, we read the deck and we're like, oh my God, I had a great grades in chemistry and my mom is a you know chemistry professor, but I mean, <laughs> I don't get this and I actually don't get any energy from it. So like I have a hard time understanding what's going on. And then I think that you have all the way into like pure software as a service place, like where we're all like, you know, born and bred in that sector. So we kind of know it. But I think that a majority of our companies we invested in are not. Like if you take better fish that are like consumer packaged goods, right? If you could take Climate X, it's, it's, you know, it's climate risk evaluation. I mean, all of these companies, like none of us have a degree or background, anything of that. So I think that for our backgrounds, I think a lot of times we just have to do a lot of reference calls and have to figure out and ask a lot of experts. And I think that's the network you end up building. We had a really fun one when we invested in, in Phytoform. Uh, so Phytoform, what they do is they have machine learning assisted. Um, if you want to put it very bluntly, and I think they won't agree to this, but you're essentially machine learning assisted genetic engineering. So like you're, you're Moderna for plants. So uh, you're essentially ChatGPT for plant genome. So like you can look at the plant genome, you can iterate on it, and you can figure out how to change it to handle you know, stress, transportation, cold storage, cold, like salt soil, whatever you want. But you're obviously touching a lot of genom genomics, right? So, like, you have to understand plant genomics. You have to understand machine learning. You have to understand wet labs. You have to understand greenhouses. You have to understand sending commodity and so on and so forth. So when we did that investment, we kind of figure out other funds to really trust on it. So when we, so when we did when we talked to Phytoform, uh, we got we started talking to Refactor Capital, uh, which only does Symbio. And then they said, I think they said, I think we have a person who can help us DD uh, the machine learning part. And we were like, Yeah, absolutely, that's great. Like we we have a lot of machine learning background, but if you have somebody who does, of course, plant genomics, that would be even better. And they said, Yeah, Jeff Dean at Google, who runs Google Brain. And we were like, Okay, that that sounds like a pretty pretty stellar <laughs> reference to figure out if their machine learning works. And then we had a founder, it's an amazing Symbio founder in London, to look at a lot of the Symbio stuff. And then Jeff Dean came back to us and said, I've read your kind of memo about it and everything. This is great. Like, not only do I want to, like I'd say, a thumbs up to you guys. This is a good investment. I think they know what they're doing. But two questions. I'm like, yeah, sure, sure. What? Jeff, Jeff. So number one, um, can I invest in the startup? Is that fine? Or like, uh, yes, 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 sir. Like, you can absolutely invest in the Number two, can, we, can I invest in Telbidot? And we're like, what are you kidding me? Like, this is crazy. Is it happening? Like, why would you invest in Telbidot? And he was like, no, but I mean, I read what you wrote about the company and this is like, you know, this is clear. This is good writing. It's like, you know, you get what they do and I think you can help them. And I think that's the thing you find. I think when you find these, like I at least found that a lot of times when we ask for help for some people to help us figure out a company, you get these people, I think get the people who really add value to you the whole process. Like they, they help you understand and maybe they want to invest, maybe don't invest. And I think that's what we found so many times when we look at a company. We have times when, um, I think there are three kinds of friends in the world. If I tell you now, hey, Jason, I'm going to paddle, like I'm going to paddle from, from Dover to Calais, like from, you know, 
from UK to France. Um, like you have three kinds of friends. You have one kind of friend who just waves and said, great, I'll take the Eurostar. I'll see you in France, right? They just, they don't give a shit. They think it's a cool adventure. They take a fun picture of you. They put it on Instagram. This crazy friend, they're paddling across, right? Then you have friends who said, no, no, don't go. I'll, they hold the, they hold the, the kayak and go like, no, you're not going. You're crazy. Like you can die. And you have the third friend who gets in the boat with you. And I think the, the latter two friends are both amazing friends. And I think the only one friend who's a shitty friend is the one who says, great, I'll grab a beer and go on Eurostar. And you find that when you invest in a startup, I think you find that you have these people that you ask questions and you have people who just say, yeah, it's a good sector. And you're like, that's not help. That's completely meaningless. And then you have people who argue with you why you shouldn't do this company. This is the worst. The sector hasn't changed. And sometimes as an investor, I think you get so much energy. You're like, this sector has been stale for 50 years. Nothing's happened in this sector for 50 years. And that's what they're telling me. This person is telling me, this is never going to happen. Nothing, no innovation has happened here for 50 years. You just feel like that's why we should do it. Uh, and then some people get in the boat with you, like Jeff did, and said, hey, can I come with you? This is it. Like, this is the company. And I think that's the thing where I think that these reference calls have been, or even like reference calls, so when you want to like do diligence calls, they've been so helpful. And in certain sectors, we feel clueless. We've done hundreds of them sometimes. And in certain sectors, it's bread and butter what we've done. And then, you know, we look, we talk to a couple of customers and that's what we do. Are there any things that you just won't do categorically? For example, uh, you know, is, is capital intensity, uh, uh, something you look at is, is bench level science risk, uh, something that, that you look at is, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll start there. I, I, yeah. I would put it this way. I think that first of all, regulatory, time, there's another one I yeah, could add. Exactly. Too. Regulatory yeah. is good. I would say every time we've said we don't do it, we will do it. So like, I think I'll watch out for saying something here, but I think that, I think we're definitely afraid. Uh, that was my, and, this was my trick to figure out what you're doing next campus is whichever one you say that you won't do. Exactly. So like I might, might drop it now and say, tell you which one it is. Uh, no, but I think that, I think generally, I think anything which is very, very high capital intensity, high science and creates a commodity output is something that we're fairly afraid of. So like, if you realize, I'm always afraid of something, if I look at it and say, so our money will help you set something up, but the money you need, these are not, this is not venture money you need. Like you need our one, two million or this round, let's say like two or three million, this round gets you to the point where you can go and ask somebody who is essentially a bank to give you 20 million. And they, the headache is this 20 million will now take venture risk, but they will get, you know, bank interest returns. So like the, that is a fundamental problem. Nobody will part with 20 million unless they get to be in the same boat as we are. And the problem is like, you won't get 20 million for $100 million post valuation. Um, so your dilution, like it won't work, right? And I think that there are certain companies you look at, like we feel like we actually think that the 2 million will take you far enough that you could do that. Or there could be companies where like, the, no, no, the next one is not 20. This is all customer finance. Like it is like the first setups you do, they will actually be paid by the customers. So like we, one of our companies, like Pebble, they have that situation where they build like massive, big hardware things. Um, and I mean, their customers are saying, could you set up one here and we'll pay you for it? And I think then, of course, the CapEx problem is a lot less. But I think that's a conversation in the due diligence and the conversation we have with the founders. I think one thing that not only do we kind of, with a lot of people on the second meeting, we have them say, oh, please just add me on WhatsApp. I'm just like, let's chat about it. The other thing we do is like, when we start like talking about walking down the aisle together, and it's like, we want to lead this round, we create a document, a notion page, which we call fund engage, where we write about like what we love with the company, you know, what are the risks, da, 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 every single 
you know, fund, of course, in the world does that. But I think what we do, which is a bit mad hat, is like we share that with them when we spend roughly five minutes on it. So like we just like add them to the document and say, here it is. Like you go write in it, I'll write in it. And we just start writing it. And then with some founders, you just see they look at it. It's like, what, what do you mean with this question? And we say, well, that's the, that we think this is going to be a big problem. And then it's like, oh, this is amazing. Like, thanks. I didn't ever think about like follow-on funding. That's a great, like, who is the typical venture fund that would do the next round? Like, or what do we aspire to or stuff like that? And, we, and they start writing and we just have an amazing jam where they're on WhatsApp and like chatting to them and sending voice messages, but they're also typing this notion. And you just feel like, wow, these are the people we like. And sometimes we look at that and feel like, oh, I, I, I. they're like pasting in hundreds of doctoral theses and, you know, everything we feel is uncomfortable about this or we feel like no no they're on you know they're driving like we are driving so i think that that process i would say if we feel that this is not going to be 20 million to get the technology level blah 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 uh, and that that 20 million will be non-venture money that like needs like they will take they will take another interest risk and the output is a commodity or it isn't a commodity because then I think you're back at clean tech. That I think is like one of the reasons I think clean tech failed was because it was high complexity research needing high capex, creating commodity outputs, and the big customer was essentially government lubricants. So I think that's like if you if we find a company that is that, we just we we talk about it a lot. Given that this is a climate focused fund, how do you think about impact? How do you measure? impact yep. and and how has that evolved over time each of those yeah i think it's an amazing it's an amazing question it's a horrible question payblot one is uh in europe we have an article eight fund so we do measure and do stuff payblot two will be an article nine fund um which means that we have much higher like reporting requirements and i think generally we believe that we want every single company to have a have a chance at buckling out one of the dents in the universe and actually making the world work again. So like we, we can't invest something which is recycling socks. Uh, it's just like that's that's not enough. Like if you can't find any category in drawdown or any article about this climate problem, like it's just a joke. We can't do it. And so that, that's first of all. But we are also super, super, super afraid of uh, the kind of the Buddhist impact way of looking at it, where you're so afraid to do any damage that you want to met, measure it so meticulously that the founders are spending so much of their time filling out and calculating and guessing. And, oh, by the way, in the lab, we actually have one plastic cap. Oh, my God, I didn't realize that. Every month we take off a cap of this plastic thing. Where should we fill that out? That just feels like, please don't do that. And I think one of the reasons for that is really because, uh, I mean, venture is a power law game, right? So the only thing that matters impact-wise are the ones that are the, like the head of the power law. So if one of the companies scales to be an immense size, they will have potentially huge impact, both negative and positive, right? Which means, and we all believe that there's going to be a couple of pivots and a couple of changes all the way, right? So for us, it really becomes the question, is this sector really big? Is this thing they're doing? Like, I mean, now direction, right? If they're talking about whatever, heat pumps, yep, heat pumps is big. That's going to be big, right? If they're talking about energy generation, that's going to be big, right? If they're talking about fertilizers, yep, it's big. Like, you don't have to talk about, is fertilizer bigger than heat pumps? It's like, you know, it's up there. And then number two, are these the kind of founders that will stick to it and actually not pivot and become like a military surveillance company? Because every single company that is like MRV company, the measurement reporting verification, they work with satellite data, they gather this thing. There's such a big risk that they get called by a 3W abbreviation 
uh, or like, you know, one of the governments and say, mm, could you help us here? Or one of the oil companies. It's like, we actually have this pipeline that we need to kind of look at, look for and like make sure that it doesn't happen to it. And then you can say as a, a nice founder can say, oh, it's good to manage one of the pipelines because if they break, that's a massive, you know, oil leak or methane leak or something. That's really good. We should definitely monitor that. And now slowly you're getting into making a company which is actually not trying to change climate change. You're just, you know, trying to build a company. So like for us, it's so important that when we talk to the founders, it's like the market is huge. Like climate market, I mean, is like a huge problem. The climate addressable market is what I used to call it instead of the total addressable market. And then the founders are people that we actually think are going to go for the win and actually make this company about climate and not like pivot out of that to just make a normal company to make money. Um, but then I think when it comes to the ranking of like, are you the number one problem or number 15 problem? We don't care. We really don't care. So every single company needs to actually be up there but we don't have a gigaton target. We don't have um, anything at all. And also that gets back to like, you remember I said that you will love unlocking a second market. So like we're certain companies we're invested in and the climate thesis is actually fairly low. If you want to, like, if you look at what they do today, you're like, this is good, but I mean, how good can it be? But then you look at our thesis and we're invested, you realize, aha. So if they succeed, they're going to completely turn the market to regenerative agriculture. That's huge. That's really, really big. But in the first business model, it's like, this, this, is, this is okay, but it's not the biggest problem. But I think that's the thing, because we're pre-seed and seed, right? We have to think about what happens three years down the line, eight years down the line, when this impact actually do the big punches. What about reporting? Uh, we, every single company has a climate thesis, which is like, you know, scientific reason why we think this sector is big. Every single company has a climate metric, which we set up with the founders, which we have a conversation about. And it's not, it's not carbon equivalents. It is like um, how much of square miles of forest do you protect from forest fires? Somebody can plug that into the math and try to calculate, you know, how much of that is in carbon equivalents. And but we want to leave it at that. And the reason is, I'm, I'm my degree is in numerical analysis and machine learning. I always tell anybody who wants a perfect number, I say, you know what happens when you multiply bullshit with bullshit? You get bullshit squared, and that's kind of what you get. So the problem is, like, let's say you take the perfect company, you make vegan burgers. It's like, obviously, a climate change. You're like, done. It's like, no, vegan burgers, that's amazing. Beef is really bad, la, 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 la. The first question, if you really want to go into that path, is, is this product catering to meat eaters or vegetarians and vegans? Because if this company goes to vegans, this is worse than what they're eating today. Because they're like, whatever. Um, but if you go to meat eaters, this is amazing. And of course, this company cannot control who eats it, right? So I kind of feel like every time you want to go down and get the carbon equivalents three decimal points, you're just fooling yourself. I think it's such, just such, such, and I think that I get it. People want an aggregated, nice number. It feels so good. But I think the problem is they don't really see the binary tree of lies that are summed up together to a number that is not true at all. And I think that's kind of what got us here as well. That's, I think, why people are very skeptical about, you know, sucking down carbon from the sky. They just say, wait, wait, wait. If people can suck down from the carbon from the sky, they can continue emitting. That's true, right? That's true. But I mean, do you think, who do you think will do that? And I think that's the, gets the conversation. It's like, you know, if we fudge the numbers and hide stuff, people can do anything. But if we stop doing that and actually says, no, I want to report the things I know and the real stuff I know, and then you can multiply the numbers, you can fudge numbers if you want them. I think that then I think that the truth is going to come out. And when you think about the, the different potential areas of, of impact, I mean, I, I'll just name a few. I mean, you can, uh, you know, you can 
build products or deliver services that emit less than today's alternatives. You can remove carbon, you know, either uh, at point of emission or or from the sky. There's a whole, you know, resiliency and and uh, catastrophe avoidance and 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 things like that. How do you think about? Oh, oh, and then actually, there's more. There's like reskilling labor forces and and there's winning hearts and minds and uh and 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 stuff like that so how do you think about impact areas and and are there any areas where that could be considered climate impact where you won't play i i would say that um i think we would do anything like if we made a company that trains people to install heat pumps that feels like it like the climate thesis is not a problem like we would believe in it i think or reskilled labor or or something that's not a problem i think there that doesn't mean we would invest in it because there might be other other issues right but i think that i don't or like you know a system to help climate advocacy or changing the like democratic system and helping something i think if we if we feel this company is focused on climate what they do they they make money like you know their business model is tied to the hip on the climate targets that's good if you make an election uh you know if you help politicians win system whatever now i'm simplifying it dumbing it down quite a lot here and the founders are kind of climate people there is no there's no rhyme and reason to say that's a climate company because this company this tech will be used by everybody right so like it's super hard so like the same thing is like you know if you if you must in a the typical satellite company that is going to do a bit of this a bit of that it's not a climate company. It does some climate, but it's not a climate company necessarily. But so I think for, for us, we really want that when they make money, they make climate. That's the five-year-old level description here. But I think that's that's kind of, that, it feels so much better. But here's a strange situation we've had. We've had a couple of companies where we looked at where the drawdown category looks great. Lindsay, our researcher, says the climate impact is usually, like, or it's really amazing. What they do is really good. But we just feel for other reasons, which are not about the founders, not about the market, but for other quote-unquote ESG reasons, we feel awkward about it and don't do it. So we have one company where we looked at, we really love the founders. They're amazing. We really love the product. They make essentially um, artificially made chocolate. So they make chocolate without cocoa. Amazing founders, amazing product. Impact-wise, cocoa is huge, like really, really bad. It's one of the big top polluters. If you take away like meat, right, then you have coffee and cocoa up there. It's really bad. So taking that out of the market is great. When we looked at the company, we talked to them, like we started having a conversation in the office, which we got this colonial imperial feeling about, not the founders. The, again, I really want to make sure that everybody gets like, the founders are amazing. We love them. But I mean, that feeling of like, there are companies in the world who we colonized, the global north colonized, forced them to grow co- cocoa and chocolate and other things on their land, take it away for them and exporting it up north to sell it. And now we're going to make that chocolate in Ottawa or in San Francisco or in New York or in Basingstoke, wherever. That just didn't feel very nice. So that was a company where we talked about it and we just felt, this feels really weird, but I don't think we're going to do this company. And it was so, so strange because this, you can have this conversation in so many ways where we have to remind ourselves sometimes we're a climate fund. We're not an ESG fund. Which means that if a company creates lots of great jobs, but they're not really working with climate, we shouldn't do it. But also, if they're working with climate and they might be a bit complicated uh, on other factors as labor, we should ask ourselves, is that our problem? If this is a robotics company, that means that this whole process will you know, reduce with 60% of climate impact on steel production, whatever, which would be huge, but it will take every single worker out of the steel industry from cradle to grave. 
a lot of communities are going to lose jobs. But yeah, I mean, we need to get decarbonized steel, right? So that's something we have a lot of conversations about, which are complicated. How do you think about geography? We do all over Europe and US. And in the US, we do everything that we can, that we practically can do. So what I mean by that is like West Coast is nine hours time difference from here. So it is uncomfortable. We all of us have kids. So it's not, it's not amazing. Uh, East Coast is not a problem at all. Uh, and then all over Europe, we don't really care. Like uh, we have done, I mean, how many have done? Uh, like I think it's, this is not going to sum up to 30, but we have we done six companies in the US, nine in the UK, two in France, three in Benelux, five in Germany, one in Austria, four in Scandinavia. <sighs> it doesn't sum up to 30, does it? But I think that you see the spread. <laughs> it's just like, it, it doesn't really matter for us. Um, so, but I think that it's just practical. And I think that the only thing is like, we have a certain com- number of companies in the US that are West Coast that we actually feel are an amazing fit. But we realize that this is a company that we, they are very, very good at what they do, but they need more of startup savviness. And that's something that we know that we can help them with because that's what we love. And uh, we really love kind of co-creating companies with people. But this means you're going to co-create with people 11 p.m. in the evening, twice, three times a week in our weekends. And that is hard. So when we do West Coast, it's typically that we feel like this is something where we can help them on a biweekly basis for an hour. And that's going to be our role. So getting co-investors there and also figuring out that our role is not going to be in the trenches with them, which is usually what we love, but it's going to be more of checking in and, you know, do, helping them with recruiting or, you know, helping them fundraising, something that you can do asynchronously a lot. Whereas in like when we do a company in Europe or on the West Coast, as are on the East Coast in the U.S., I mean, we have startup founders that, like I usually say this, one of the founders I invested in 10 years ago said, in this super strange long-term game, when you don't know if you're doing, you know, if you're doing the right things, you don't know if a company is good or bad and anything, how do you know, you know, what is your index or anything that you're in the right direction? And I said to him, like, I think it honestly is when the founder pings me on Friday evening and asks me if I can help them tonight or Saturday or Sunday. Because they know that it's uncomfortable for me. They know this is going to be me negotiating with my wife and kids if I can do this. It's also uncomfortable for them. But they trust in, like they give me and say, I, I trust we're so close friends, close friends that you would help me. Um, that feels so amazing. Because then I think we've built a relationship that is, that's really, really good. And I think that's like usually the signal I try to figure out. Uh, and I don't want, this is not a message for the founders I invested to ping me on weekends. Um, but it is like that feeling of you're like, we have this trust in each other that if I say it's uncomfortable and no, please, they get it. But also they're asking, right? It's a friend saying, could you help me move on Christmas day? It is like, geez, man, Christmas day. <laughs> Maybe we can do it early morning, right? Like you, you try to figure out. And I think that that is an amazing feeling. So like the problem is like, we can't have companies on the West coast that want to move on Christmas day. That is just too complicated. Uh, so switching gears, one thing we didn't talk about is just the LP mix. You talked about uh, how you kind of had this dual pronged process of operators and professionals. What is the mix of of operators and and professionals? And then within that professional bucket, what's the mix of impact capital and financial? And how do you envision that that will evolve over time as you look at fund two and beyond? Yeah, so uh, none of our investors, I think that from one of our LPs in fund one, I think we're in their impact pockets of what they do. But mm-hmm. uh, all of the others, like, it's like, we're not like, we're like, it's we're in their 
strictly a financial decision strictly financial exactly and so like in fund one we have 63 lps and it is i'm trying to think about we have one pension fund we have like three fund of funds we have one venture fund and then we have six big family offices and the rest are operators startup founders um so like there's like a pretty and of course the money is the opposite direction like you know like the majority of the money are from from not from the operators um so i think that's with pillbot one with pillbot two we've taken an approach where we actually every single lp that does more than one percent of the fund we have an alignment call with and every single new lp who was not an lp in pillbot one we have an alignment call with to actually figure out where is the money coming from where's the money going to why are they investing in us and it is when they have decided. So they have said, we want to invest in Pelbot2. We say, can we just have a call? And we send them the, like in advance, the script. And it's like, this is what we want to ask you. And I think it's it's really good because I think that we just also want to feel proud of our LPs. We, like, we've had some of our founders to ask us who said, who are your investors? Like, you know, we're taking a check from you. Who, like, is there like a big oil nation in that maybe it's like is there a big company that we might know that is in the fossil fuel extraction world and i think it's so good to just be able to say no not at all like you know we we, we want to make sure that we actually could tell you exactly our lps and we could be proud of it do we know what all of our lps are doing with all of their money no of course not like these are family offices you have no clue right but for Pablo two we're trying to up that one more step and really try to make sure that we can be more even pushing more and i think the funny thing is i've noticed is that it's kind of the same. We have every single company in Western, we have a climate pledge that we send the founders to. It's part of our due diligence saying like, it's, we offer them a term sheet, sorry. We say, here's our climate pledge. We've talked about it before, but here's it in writing. You can read it, like whatever. Some people ask for it a lot and we tell them a lot earlier. And, and it's a pledge that they say that they want to pledge personally and as a company, blah, 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 blah. It's legally impossible to go after them, right? It's just a pledge. What we've found is, again, back to the Pellwood founders, the Pellwood people, is that every single founder but two have signed this with joy and said, this is amazing. Two founders said, this is not hard enough. And like, can you, like we want to edit this because we don't actually want to sign on something that actually is an effort doing. And I think it's funny because when we did this pledge, we were thinking in the beginning, oh shit, will we lose deals of this? Will we have companies that will go away? And it's funny because it's kind of the same now with, with LPs. When we say we need this alignment, like, are you okay with this? Old family offices are uncomfortable. They feel like, I don't want to talk where money's from, I don't want to do that. But by God, many, many LPs say, this is amazing. This is really good. This is really good. Thanks for asking us these questions. Like, we've spent the last 15 years on, like, crafting this, like, how we think about how we're investing. Thank you for asking this question. And it's funny, because, like, I thought that it would make people stressed. But, I mean, the majority of people are saying, thanks for asking. This is great. One Unrelated question to Pale Blue Dot, but you, but it got triggered when you were talking about the uh, oil nations and oil money and and things like that. Uh, so it's a bigger picture question. But w- what do you think the role is of fossil fuels in the energy transition? And relatedly, what do you think is the role of fossil fuel companies in the energy transition? Yeah, so I used to be, I think that everybody used to be in the 80s positive to fossil fuel, right? Like, I think that, I think anybody who says that we shouldn't have added fossil fuel on the planet, they're the curse and they're the scourge. Well, they should get off their pedestal because they wouldn't be in that warm room and eat the food they were eating without oil. So it's it's very clear that like with in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever, like 
there was up to a point, I think we, we can all agree that we're all positive to fossil fuels. And I think it started turning, right? And I think that I used to, like, if you asked me two years ago, I would have said, I'm super negative. Animals and fossil fuel, get it out. And I think that we've seen some of the Pale portfolio founders to hire people who came from the fossil fuel world and said, holy shit, this person changed everything. If you want to buy and source pumps and valves and stuff and you know get it mounted and built these people are geniuses they're geniuses so i think that i really softened up and i think that i did an interview for pebble when they just they just hired their vp engineering and i I was just blown away by the guy like he was like so amazing like so amazing and i kind of i had all of these questions like you know you used to work in oil kind of things and i mean you get it like you know that wasn't this thing when he joined the industry. And I mean, like he had kids and, you know, family and everything. And then like, after, I think he's not a bad person. And I really felt, I softened up to realizing they do have a role because if you want to suck down carbon from the sky, you need to build big installations and they know how to do it, right? If you need to transport stuff, they know how to do it. Like if you need, like all of these things, you need to do it. If you're working with anything, which is actually real physical objects, the oil industry, trillions of dollars per year are in that part. My headache with the fossil fuel industry is that all of their incentives are to get everybody to not phase them out. And I think that so there are two things that are happening. One is like in Pebble.1, one, we had a couple of LPs who wanted to join who came from like either very, you know, yeah, the obvious ones that, that are like, you know, talking to a lot of climate funds. And in that conversation, I said to them, they said, oh, like $2 trillion per year goes into climate from us. And I was like, holy shit, that's amazing. That's crazy. And then I hesitated and paused, like, how much is actually going not into climate? And they were like, oh, it's so hard to say. Like, it's, it's, you know, it's like, and I said, okay, okay, sorry, sorry. Let me put it this way. Is, uh, is 90% uh, going into like the old, uh, you know, the old, you know, the, the black money, so to say. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 90, I would say. 95? Probably. 98? Mm-hmm. 99? Mm, yeah, yes, 99. So you're telling me that you're spending 1% on climate and 99% on making sure continue polluting. And they were like, well, I mean, we're spending trillions on climate, right? But it's like, but you're also spending bazillions on trying to, you know, destroy the planet. Uh, and of course, they're not intentfully trying to destroy the planet. They're, you know, keeping our schools with electricity and, you know, universities and, you know, the hospitals and, you know, making sure we can transfer everything. But I just feel like there's way too much money in trying to not change. And I think it used to be, back in the 80s, the oil companies just tried to lie. And just like, you know, create confusion. It's like, mm, is this actually, is smoking bad for you? Is oil bad? Like, you know, whatever. And then in the 90s, 2000s, it started by like just adding a lot of complexity, renaming stuff. It's like, just listen to the world, natural gas. I mean, the only natural gas that exists in the world comes from your butt. I think everything else is like, you don't want around. I mean, you don't want that around either. But I mean, the gas that we burn, that's called natural gas it poisons people into their home and it pollutes like everything and increases temperature. So we don't want that in how naturally we want to brand it. And nowadays what the fossil fuel companies are doing is they're funding communities in the global South, trying to get women to say, we want our kids to also, you know, have what you had in the global North. And I mean, it's really hard to say, no, you can't have it because you're polluting the planet because we polluted the planet. But I mean, if you trace the money where, where, where it came from, from those, it's a foundation and that foundation is by an oil company. So like, I think that I have very little tolerance for that kind of double speak or, or double act when I just feel like, 
I really want to make sure that we get like out of exploiting animals and extracting fossil fuels to the fastest speed we technically can. And I'm happy to do, lower the temperature in my house and freeze a bit if that's what needed. And I know that that's easy for me to say, uh, but I think that I just wish that we could curb that way faster and not take their money. Um, hire their people, yes. I know we're running short on time. There's a few topics I want to make sure we touch on before we wrap up. Uh, one is, I mean, you're clearly driven by impact as a firm, yet you mentioned that you don't actually have any impact dollars in the LP ranks, at least from the professionals. Why is that? I think that we we essentially only declined two kinds of LPs. We declined LPs who we felt came from oil or something, or like we just felt, Oof, this is not something we can represent. And we also declined LPs who came from pure impact, who wanted tons of reporting. Uh, and the reason to that is that we just feel like we're going to, it's going to be so onerous for the founders. Like we're going to ask them for so much reporting and so much data to then sum it up, to be able to give it to somebody who will just, you know, put it in their report and nobody will use it for real. Right. So like when we look at how we're going to handle article nine, so with article nine, like we have to get the data from the startups. Like there's no way we can get away with not doing a lot of admin and doing stuff. We're going to do two things. One, we're going to try to do it on our own, like what we can. But then with the part where the startups has to do, and there's no way they can get away from it. We ask them, they're going to be bucket questions. So is your, do you have an office? Yes, no. Is your office uh, less than four people, uh, five to 10, 11 to two, 200, whatever, 101 to 500? And then when they click that bucket of saying 10, uh, you know, 11 to whatever I said, 100, we're going to take the carbon equivalents of 100, the highest measurement in that bucket, right? And then we're going to sum up those and report it. And anybody who's going to look at us, it's going to be look way worse, right? Because all of the companies will have huge offices and, you know, big fleets and whatever, right? And it's like somebody might say, whoa, this is not that good. And we're just like, no, 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 no. Now, you know, but the thing is the companies, their metrics won't be worse. Like the companies will never, like they will grow. And when they're really big, this cover is going to flip to the next level. But we're going to see that the negative impact on the portfolio of the companies is going to be essentially like, a, it's going to be kind of a, a J-curve version of it. Like it's going to look really bad fairly quickly, and then it's going to turn around. And I think the reason is that when we talk to our investors, we try to really say that, that at the end of the game, it's not three or four or five companies that really changes it that matter. And most of the companies will go away. They will not really matter. And if that company has one car, which is not electric, it doesn't matter. What really matters is that if we invest, we don't want to invest in, an, in a delivery company in South America that has fossil fuel cars with their promise that they're going to move to EVs. Because that promise has to be very, very sure that that's going to happen and very, very fast. But we're happy to invest in a startup that does last mile delivery, which is purely electric. Because that company is going to be so expensive for them to have one fossil fuel scooter, car, whatever. So like, I think that's one of the things where I think that we could broaden our minds a bit and invest in the greenest oil field or the transition company, which is like, you know, makes a fossil fuel company be green or gets, um, um, what is it, cows to graze more structurally so like they do less impact. Right now, we haven't been able to grapple with that. We just feel super uncomfortable whenever we talk about it. So I think that gets you with like, you know, to your question, which is like, why don't we have the impact pockets uh, LPs? It's because they want us to do this. They want us to show the carbon equivalent of that company and show it's up there on the top five. And then we kind of feel that we're multiplying bullshit by bullshit. And that just feels disingenuous. 
I, I really personally believe I love intellectual honesty. I just love when I feel like I really honestly, logically believe I might be lying to myself, but at least I'm not lying to you. Uh, Hampus, do, do you want to talk briefly about the drop? Yeah, absolutely. So we do this yearly climate conference. Last year was a prototype. What happened was that when I did this event in Berlin 2019, I, I did it out of two reasons. I did it was first because I want to prototype and figure out if that was the thing. The other thing is like I was very tired of going to startup conferences and feeling that I was on the chair in the cake talking about climate if I did that. So I kind of felt like, you know, they, every single startup or every single Western stage talk about what to do. And then they brought up somebody who talks about climate. It was kind of like nowadays, if you go to a startup conference, like there's one climate person. It used to be 10 years ago, there was like a woman on stage. Now it's a climate person on stage. You just feel like, what the Come on, it's like, you know, make it about climate for God's sake, that's important. Um, so I think that like I that was one fear I had. But the other fear I had is like when you actually go to the climate forums, I think there are three kinds of forums. You have like the Davos kind of feeling of forums, which I haven't been to Davos, but you get that feeling of people like they brag about what they do and you feel like, yeah, can you just can we talk? Can we do? Can we share knowledge about do it? You have the impact forums where people are talking about like how they step without stepping on bugs kind of conversation and how you measure this and that. And I feel like, mm, okay. And then you have the third kind of forum, which are like IPC kind of level conversations, which are you know, discuss of what probability chance were fucked, how, when. And it just feels like, can we just please all do action? Can we like try to like do stuff every day to kind of move this forward and share knowledge? And so when we started Pillbo Dot, we always said we should do that conference again that we did in Berlin. Like, oh, that felt like the great feeling. And then Heidi is like, she's big on events. She was like, this is a great thing. We should gather. Ewell and Heidi set up a lot of events where they did it with their previous thing, where they did their previous funds. So like, we just talked about it a lot. Like, we know, we, we love this. COVID came, you know, like there was no reason to have events. And then last year, we just said, I don't want to go. Like, we just started, I don't want to go to events. And it was like, but, 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 wait, 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 wait. Shouldn't we make an event that we want to go to? So then let's make an event, which is for action-oriented, action-biased people within climate who are really working on it, who want to inspire each other and share knowledge. That's what we want. So that's the idea. And last year, we did a prototype, 600 people. This year, it's 800 people. It's the 7th of September. It's in the city of Malmo, which is a tiny city. It's just, just next to Copenhagen. So people like, can get to Copenhagen. It's fairly easy with trains and planes. Um, and the nice thing, it's like 800 people. Every single thing on stage, like the keynote stages, are quote-unquote uninvestable. It is like how we collaborate with like grids or the political system, or it's climate activism, or, or it is... Um, how, you know, like how the, the, how the old companies are working with media or stuff like that. No, there's not going to be a single investor in the audience to see like, Ooh, I want to invest in that or a single startup founders that says, I'll do that idea, but I'll do it for this. Right. But what it will do, I think is going to fuse us all together and it's going to open our minds of like, Oh my God, you can be a lawyer and you can sue governments. That's amazing. I never thought about that. That's crazy. Right. You can be a fungal researcher and work with this. That's amazing. Right. You can really open your minds to it. And then we have these round tables and the round tables are done by people in the industry who say, we have a fund, we invest, like, we have invested a lot in Synbio, but holy crap, Synbio is a hard sector because of these CapEx issues and research and commodity outputs. I really like want to talk about what people should and shouldn't invest in. So for example, there are two funds that are going to talk about that. They're a roundtable, 20 people, 45 minutes, where they're going to share very honestly, this is what you shouldn't invest in in Synbio. Uh, and they've invested in like 40 plus Synbio companies and they've had their, you know, their wins and their losses. And they're not going to sit there and pitch LPs why they should invest in their funds. They're both big family offices. They have no reason to kind of do that. But they're going to say, this is what's been hard. And I think we have a lot of these roundtables that are the good thing about them. It's really about, there's kind of like, it's a WhatsApp code on the table. So like you go up to the table, you scan it, you're part of the group, you sit down, you listen, there's a note taker. Like you get the thing moving, you really get to bond with other people. You kind of ping them on WhatsApp and chat with them. And I think that's the point. It's like, we want people to leave the event feeling super inspired 
but also their network is like quadruple, right? Like they just feel like it's hard to quadruple your network, Jason. But like, I think that they just feel like, oh my God, I met so many people that are also working on figuring out damage and they were great people and we had a great day. So that's the plan. So that's kind of the short thing about the drop. And we're super excited to do it again. It's, it feels we learned so much last year and it's going to be even more fun this year. Uh, last two. One is just uh, who do you want to hear from, if anybody, and how can the audience help help you? And then parting one is just anything I didn't ask that I should have or, or any parting words for listeners. I think that there are a couple of things. So like one, I think I would love to hear, I, I think you should really interview uh, funds that are trying to do climate. I think it would be really interesting to invest some of the big, amazing funds that, that you know, the marquee logos that we all know of that are saying we want to do more climate. And I have a conversation is like... Recording one of those this week, by, by oh, the way, with a, with, a, with a big generals fund that is, that is doing just that. But that's so interesting because like I, I know a couple of funds that we have in conversation with quite a lot and how they're quote unquote struggling. And I think it's really interesting. Like what are they struggling with to understand that? So I think that's a, that I would love to listen to that. I think that a thing that I wish, like if I, like the only thing I would say is I would love to meet you at, like if you, if you listen to this and are super inspired, I would love to meet you at the drop. Like it would be really fun. You just go in, click apply on the waiting list and we approve people from the inside to make sure that people are coming that have the right mindset. Um, and I think that I, I, I really want to make sure that everybody who works in climate action oriented, who wants to work in climate, they try to gather and actually meet each other and talk about it. So that I, I, I get so much energy from that personally. I think the question you didn't ask, which I can't answer, but I would love to get really good inspiration of what to read or watch or something, which is inspirational about climate, which isn't, uh, doomsday uh, climate fiction or which isn't a documentary about soil depletion and I think the only thing I've ever read personally is Overstory um, I think that was the book I mean I've read and watched like Kiss the Earth and uh, you know uh, Ministry of the Future and everything else but I feel like most of the things I read they don't work as fiction for me otherwise like if I read a climate fiction book it's not a fiction book it's a climate concept book that's wrapped in a fiction thing and the same thing I think that I would love to get more people inspired and I would love to get recommendations for books I should read or films I should watch or TV series that are about climate, but that are not about climate. Um, that I would love someone else to ask, uh, to be asked so I can get great inspiration for it. I love reading fiction books. It teleports my mind into other people's bodies. And I think that I would love to do that more with stuff that are climate. Any final parting words, Hampus? I think the only thing is like, I used to not understand how I could apply my career to climate. I would love that everybody realizes that they can apply their career into climate because I think we vote, we vote with our votes, we vote with our feet, we vote with our money, and we vote with our careers. And I think the problem is that I think a lot of people just feel like some of these, I don't know how to vote with it. Like, I don't know how to do it. Like, and they try to be a climate champion by buying less plastic and eating more vegetarian, but that, that's good. But I think that it's way better if they can change their career to actually work daily on climate. And it's hard, but I think there is a job out there for everybody to actually apply themselves. I think about if you've watched Expanse, the TV series, or you read the books, if you look at the people who live on Mars, it feels for me, I've never seen the economical you know, statistics on the people who live uh, on Mars. But for me, it feels like a third of them working with terraforming, so climate. A third of them is a military to make sure that Earth doesn't invade them. And a third, third of them in the service profession to make sure that everybody else like has a hotel and food to eat and i think that's probably what we're going to end up with doing here like we're going to end up a third of the population working with trying to stifle climate change a third is going to make sure that you know we sadly need a military if this happens goes too long 
and a third will just you know try to make sure that everyone else can do their job. And I really hope that we don't have to get there with a third of us being military. Well, Hampus, awesome discussion. Gosh, it was long, but it, we could have easily doubled or tripled it and had plenty of good stuff to talk about. But uh, thank you so much for making the time and for all the work that you're doing in the space and the example that you're setting you know, for us at, at MCJ and I know for, for so many others as well. So thank you and best of luck to you and the team. Thanks a lot for doing this, Jason. I think you still have one of the best podcasts in the industry. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion... Let us know that via Twitter at MCJPod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode.